Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, you guys, this episode of Other People is brought to you by the Litbreaker Ad Network. Litbreaker helps book publishers, authors, and premium brands reach an engaged audience of authors, artists, editors, agents, producers, bloggers, media professionals, and readers. Lots of readers. Litbreaker ads appear on The Rumpus, Large Hearted Boy, HTML Giant, Full Stop, The Nervous Breakdown, Plowshares, and other high quality magazines and blogs featuring literary, arts-oriented, and pop culture content and above-the-fold advertising. Visit litbreaker.com for more information about advertising packages. Litbreaker is also accepting new partner sites in literary, general interest, mystery, creative writing, young adult, romance, and other book genres. That's the Litbreaker Ad Network, an ad network for the literary, arts, and culture web. Be sure to visit litbreaker.com for more information. It's an ad network for smart, interesting, readerly people. Go and advertise on it. Oh my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jeez, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Okay, right. everybody, here we go again. Right. This is it. This is other people. This is a recording of my voice. This is book people in conversation about things that are often unrelated to books. Thanks for being here. It's good to be with you. What is happening? Uh, well, just a little bit ago, I was across town. I was having coffee with a friend of mine. We were at a cafe. Uh, it was bustling. It was a beautiful day in LA. It's, a, it's been cold here, but it was sunny. It was brisk. And we were sitting there at a sidewalk table and we were surrounded as you often are here in Los Angeles by an unusually high number of extremely attractive people. Even for here, it was a high concentration. And we're talking like real physical anomalies like DNA masterpieces, supermodels, uh, men with uh, chin dimples and man scarves, cleft chins, I believe they're called. And then you have these like six foot tall women uh, who look like ice queens with the, uh, the blonde hair and the caramel skin and the blue eyes. Uh, Aaron Eckhart, the actor, uh, was there. And uh, he has a cleft in his chin, as you will recall. But uh, so anyway, here's the thing. It's about... Uh, this conversation that I had with my friend, she and I were sitting there 
and we're talking about all these beautiful people that are around us. And we both like to look at them, to just stare at them because they're so unusually good looking. (laughs) And, uh, it doesn't matter to me. I mean, I like to look at women because I'm a guy and I'm a heterosexual guy. Uh, but I can look at men too, usually with envy if they're really good looking or with, you know, with the desire to learn. Like, how can I learn from these people? How can I incorporate some uh, bit of what they have going on into my own uh, repertoire? How do you pronounce that? Repertoire? You know what I'm saying. So, you know, the point is that uh, I think this is normal behavior for all human beings, one way or the other. Like whatever it is that we're into, whatever it is that we perceive to be beauty, we are all out there and we're looking at one another on a daily basis. And when we see someone in real life who is attractive, and particularly when we see someone who is, uh, by our judgment, astonishingly beautiful, we will often stop, uh, we pause, and we look closer. And so this is what I think my point is. Why is it considered bad manners to stare? Like, why is it not considered socially acceptable to just go up to one of these people one of these astonishingly beautiful people, and to say something like, uh, "Excuse me, miss, do you mind if I just look at you for a couple of mi- <laughs> for a couple of minutes? Yeah, you're an extremely gorgeous woman, and I would just like to look at you. If you could, uh, if you could please just uh, just hold still. Uh, or conversely, you could say, "Excuse me, sir, uh, would you mind if I examined your chin dimple, or something to that effect? If you know what I'm saying." So it it just feels to me, and and I was discussing this with my friend, it feels to me like so much of the time we're living this big lie and it's juvenile. We're trying to pretend like we're not looking when of course we're looking. And I find it pitiful that we have to pretend that we're not looking and that we have to try to like steal glances and hide behind sunglasses. It's completely absurd. People should be allowed to stare is what I'm saying. And frankly, I think, I think we need to be more honest verbally. I need to be more honest verbally. Like what would happen if I just started telling people, like if I just went up to people and said, excuse me, like, don't be creeped out. Uh, I'm a happily married man. I'm a family man. I'm not trying to be unsavory. Uh, I'm just staring at you. (laughs) I'm just sitting here slack jawed in sync with my biology and I'm admiring your bone structure. Like, why would that be so wrong? And obviously that's probably not the right phrasing. I realize that could be awkward phrasing. I have a particular gift for that, particularly in these kinds of interpersonal exchanges. But uh, thinking it over, if someone did that to me, I wouldn't give a shit. I'd be flattered. Who doesn't like a compliment? The only odd part would be the standing still, like the 90-second stare down while you just stand there and receive the attention. That would take some getting used to, but it's still a compliment, you know, within reason long as they're not getting handsy or like actually like drooling physically or something, you know, strange like that. And, you know, I can see, you know, I can, I can already like anticipate the counterpoint. I can hear the rebuttals about uh, the objectification of the human form and so on and so forth. Uh, to that, I say, uh, what's wrong with it? Like, you know, what's wrong with a little bit of objectification? And the truth is that it's not even objectification. What I'm saying here is that a person who happens to be astonishingly beautiful is astonishingly beautiful 
in much the same way that an astonishingly beautiful flower is astonishingly beautiful. Like you are a living, (laughs) you are a living thing in my environment. And if you're freakishly beautiful, I'm going to stare at you. So at least have the decency to stand still. It's like you're a rainbow. It's not my fault. I have to look. So it's just, it seems like there should be an easier way to do this. Like maybe there should be a hand signal or, you know, like some sort of universal hand signal or some sort of a code word or, or safety word, safety word. Is that the right way to put it? Where like, if you're on the receiving end, if you're walking down the sidewalk and all of a sudden someone gives you the hand signal, uh, then you know to just stop and allow people to enjoy you for a moment. That's the price of your beauty. That is the price of your freakish beauty. You should be required to give people a chance to enjoy you. Is that creepy? (laughs) Am I getting creepy in my old age? That's what I want to know. I just want to stare slack jawed at women in public places. What is so wrong with that? I just want to examine your chin dimple and your man scarf. Don't judge me. I can feel you guys out there judging me. I really can. Hey, everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. My guest today is Rosie Schapp. She is a contributor to This American Life and NPR.org, and she writes a monthly column for the New York Times Magazine. It is called Drink. She has a new memoir out. It's called Drinking with Men, and it is due out from Riverhead Books next week. It is generating some serious buzz, some plaudits. The official publication date is January 24th, 2013. It is great to have Rosie here on the show. We had a really good time talking. She's very easy to talk to. Uh, She's worked in bars for a lot of years, which might uh, have something to do with it. She has that sort of easy presence, and she understands how to make a conversation. So uh, let's go there. Let's go to there. Let's do the program. This right here is my conversation with the lovely and talented Rosie Schapp, and her new memoir is called Drinking with Men. Right now I'm in actually my brother's bedroom in midtown Manhattan, which is really strange because I plan to be in his living room, which seems like a more suitable place for an interview, but there's a crew in the kitchen doing work. So this is the quietest part of the apartment. Um, so let's see, it's sort of like white, it's, it's in an old, it's in a pre-war building. Um, 
so the room is small, but there are high ceilings, and there's a transom over the door, and there's kind of like two shades of beige that the walls are painted with, and then white trim, and a brown carpet, um, and, a, and a print of, uh, I guess it's a lithograph of a, a work by, by the painter Adolf Gottlieb, just like a big burst of black fuzz on the bottom and sort of a red, sort of like a big red circle above it. Um, and, you, and did you say that you're in Manhattan? I am. I'm, I'm in Midtown Manhattan. Okay, and that's where you Very, grew. That's where you grew up, right? I grew up mostly in Manhattan, but uh, but not in Midtown. Okay, so what, let's let's talk about that first. Well, actually, sure. you know what? I should ask I should ask another question first because uh-huh. um, it seems to be uh, the obvious lead is. Uh, <laughs> Uh, first of all, am I an alcoholic? Second of all, are you an alcoholic? Like you're writing about booze. <laughs> Let's just get right. this out in the open right away because I, I, that's that's fine, Brad. Um, whether you're an alcoholic or not, I can't say. <laughs> um, only you can answer that question. Um, I've had to think about that question, and it, it hasn't been a bad thing for me to have to think about. And um, and and what I've arrived at is that I am not an alcoholic. Um, I like drinking very much. I can't drink the way I drank in my 20s, and certainly the parts of drinking with men where there's the most excessive drinking are in my teens and my 20s. And um, back then, I drank quite a lot. Uh, There were moments when I really had to sort of step back and uh, think a little bit about what I was doing and and wonder if I was an alcoholic. Um, But I know now that I'm not. Okay. I, I, yeah, go ahead. So what is like, what does drinking to excess mean? Like in, in your twenties, like, you know, it's like, can you quantify it? Because I think we all have maybe different versions of that. Like how hardcore were you? Yeah, well, I think we all have different versions and we also kind of have different capacities. Uh, I mean, when I was in college, I probably drank four or five neat whiskeys a night, you know, maybe with a pint or two of, of Guinness along with them. And if I did that on a nightly basis now, um, I obviously wouldn't be able to work. Um, yeah, I just, I just couldn't do it. Um, you know, I, I don't think I was ever really um, an absolute binge drinker. Um, I mean, there are stories I tell where I, you know, there were a couple of awful binging episodes, especially one when I was a teenager just outside of Los Angeles. Um, but... Uh, but it was never really about getting drunk. I mean, I think back and I think these times when I really did drink a lot, A, I was very young and could handle it. I guess I could metabolize it better or faster or something back then. And, and I think it was also a really anxious time, and I think that's probably why I drank that much back then. But there was never a moment where I said, you have to stop drinking. This is the thing that's totally messing up your life. Um... It's, it's really easy for me to go for days without a drink. Um, it's not really easy for me to, uh, to not smoke, for example. Um, you know, there are things that are really hard for me not to do, and, and drinking isn't one of them. I mean, now when I go out, I tend to have a, a maximum of three drinks. And That's where and I'm at, top- too. That's where I'm at. But I, I, I think I have, Fred, like... Do you, you mind if I ask how old you are? I'm 37. Okay, so you're a little younger than me, but that's about the time when that's where I kind of leveled at like three drinks when I go out. It's a weird and but like three, it's like like I I this is where I'm at. Like I have two glasses of red wine pretty much every day. 
Okay. And because and like part of that part of that is because I just like it, and I like I like having it with uh, dinner. Of course, um, yeah. You know, and then the other thing is that I've read that it's good for you, and I'm right. I'm, I have too. I'm a t- <laughs> yeah. So like I'm a. This justifies my habit, and then B. Uh, I'm a total sucker for those kinds of like health trend things. Like I'll be like, oh, really? That's what I need to do, and then I'll start drinking red wine uh, almost right. exclusively. But I really do enjoy it. Like I, I find yeah. it, I find it like a nice ritual, and like you know, I'm suspicious of um, being too pure. You know what I'm saying? Like in life, I'm, yeah, sure, of course. Like I, I can't imagine. Yeah, like in life, you have a drink, enjoy your day. You know, like and don't, and, and if you don't overdo it, it's fine. You feel great. You know, and. Yeah. I I mean, again, I I need like days when I don't drink just to get stuff done. I just, um, hangovers aren't what they used to be. You know, I feel them a lot more in my, in my late thirties and now in my early forties. Um, they affect me the way, uh, in a way they didn't when I was in my twenties, you know, in my twenties, I could, I could stay out drinking all night and still wake up the next day and either go to work or go to class or do what I had to do. I, I just can't do that anymore. You know, one thing that drives me a little crazy with these studies about uh, red wine's health benefits is they're almost always better for men. Right. right. <laughs> like, you get to drink more of it and, uh, and have greater health benefits, I think. And uh, we're not supposed to drink quite as much of it. Well, no, it's always uh, like for the woman, it's always like you're supposed to have one glass. And I'm like, that's no fun. One glass. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> right. Right. While you're sitting there with your steak and your two glasses of Bordeaux, <laughs> just sipping on our one little glass of red wine. It's just not fair. It's not. But, you know, I think – and the other thing, too, that I sort of mess with my, in my head is like, you know – what constitutes a glass? Like I'm not measuring this out. Like to me, it's like, <laughs> to me it's like a half a bottle a day. Half a bottle a day, you're good. You know, like I think that sounds pretty good. If if you can do a half bottle of wine every day and do everything else that you have to do, do your writing, do your podcast, do the magazine, um, you know, make time for your family and your friends. If you can do all of that, that's fantastic. Yeah, yeah. I just I mean, don't know how. I don't know how normal it is. Maybe like are people out there listening? Like, oh my god, this guy drinks a half a bottle of wine a day. Like, or maybe maybe that's modest. I have no no real idea. <laughs> some people are going to think that, and some people are going to think you're a total lightweight. Yeah. Well, you I know, think, you I can't think, win. No, you can't. Um, okay, so New York City, growing up, yeah. like, give me like some biography because I, I, you know, as soon as somebody tells me that they grew up in New York City, I'm, my interest is immediately piqued because it seems like such a fascinating place to grow up and it's uh, such a different uh, youth experience than I had growing up in the Midwest. So tell me. Yeah, I, I, I remember hearing you talk about your Indiana youth and, <laughs> right. and, the, and the warm, heartwarming, uh, loving stories you had to tell about it. But, you know, I think this is kind of the thing. Wherever you grow up, um, I think it's really easy to take it for granted. Uh, so to me, um, I remember, I don't know, I was probably three or four, the first time my parents took me to the suburbs, to like a friend's, uh, you know, one of my father's work friend's barbecues or something like that. I could not believe that people had stairs. You know, the idea that people lived in something other than an apartment on one floor I couldn't believe, like, going into this house as a child and seeing a staircase. Wow. That kind of blew me away. I thought everybody sort of rode an elevator, you know, up to a floor, and that was it. And then having a yard, I couldn't believe people had their own park. (laughs) It it was stunning to me. Um, So I think, you know, believe it or not, I think I had a little suburban or rural envy very briefly. 
um, and, and as I got older, I started to really love New York and learn how to use New York and also realize sort of retroactively um, how much certain people in my life had taught me about how to love the city. I had a fantastic grandfather, my maternal grandfather. Um, I was very close to as a kid. Uh, my paternal grandfather didn't, didn't live in the city, but my maternal grandfather did. And, and, you know, I just thought this was normal grandpa stuff, but he took my brother and me to the theater. Every Sunday we did something cool. We'd go to like a Buster Keaton film festival at a revival movie theater or go look at art or, you know, go to a play or a ball game. Um, so he, he did all this great stuff with us, and I, I didn't realize until I was a little older how, how good I had it. Um, yeah, that sounds awesome. It was great. He's a, he was a native of Brooklyn. Both of my parents, <clears throat> excuse me, both of my parents were born in Flatbush. Um, by choosing to have their children after they'd, you know, moved to Manhattan, they made my brother and me a little less cool than we would have been otherwise. I, I've lived in Brooklyn 16 years now, and people say, oh, where are you from? Well, I, I, I'm a native. I grew up in New York. <gasps> you grew up in Brooklyn? No, I have to confess that I actually was born in Manhattan. Uh, which has lost a little bit of its cachet, I think, over the years. Um, but I, I'm really glad I grew up here. Um, I love the city. I love the city more and more all the time. And, and then when I was a teenager, I did um, live in the suburbs for a few years, so I got that experience. Um, and uh, that made me even more grateful. How did that uh, happen? Did you guys move out to the suburbs? or? We did. Uh, my, my parents split up when I was quite young, and uh, my brother and my mom and, and I you know, lived in the city, uh, I guess it was just after eighth grade, we moved to the suburbs, and it was never clear to me exactly what was going on. Um, I, 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 was, you know, I wasn't a terrible kid, but I, I didn't pay a lot of attention in school, and you know, I started to experiment a little with drinking and with drugs and, and smoking and cutting classes and things like that. And, and I think my mom kind of thought the suburbs would um, calm me down. Um, <laughs> Uh, and I, you know, and of course, it probably had the opposite effect. Right. Um, you know, I think you know my brother was a really good student and really had it together, and I think she kind of felt that he would likely thrive anywhere. Um, so you know, a nice suburb in Connecticut with a you know highly regarded public school system, she thought would would be fine for both of us. Um, and then what I discovered was being the city kid moving to the suburbs gave you this kind of instant credibility that I didn't earn or deserve in any way, really. See, you still have it with me right now. Like, I'm listening like rap. <laughs> you're, like Thanks. A, I, you're like an oracle, as far as I'm <laughs> Well, I really want to hear much more about Indiana, see? <laughs> Um, I've had a good time in Bloomington, by the way, it's but I guess good, people say that a lot. Like a good, whenever anybody has a good time in Indiana, it's kind of in Bloomington. That tends to be it. Or like Broad Ripple in Indianapolis. And like, listen, you know, I, I bag on Indiana in a way because I live there and I feel like you sort of have the ability to do that to your hometown in ways that other people. Oh, of not. course. But of course. I, you know, I, there's a lot of good people there that I grew up with and like I made a lot of good friends. So I can't. You know, I'm sure I can't paint it with too broad of a brush. It's just, right. it's just, right. uh, I don't know. I'm like, I, I like, and I've come to enjoy, uh, living in a big city and being someplace where there's just like a lot happening culturally of course. 
and it's hard to you know it's hard to go back you know and, right, and imagine right. myself back in that in that environment but you know the town that i grew up in like Forbes mag, you know how Forbes magazine does those lists, those rankings, yeah. right? Great places to live. It was it was just ranked number one last year. The which best I, place to live. The best place to live. <laughs> Holy cow! And, yeah, and you know, my I, I went mean, back to see my sister last uh, summer for her birthday, and you know, I got it was it happened to be like the one weekend or one of the two weekends of the summer where it wasn't like a hundred and twenty degrees and humid. Right. It was beautiful. It was like seventy five, eighty degrees and sunny and no humidity practically. And I got on a bike and I rode around my old hometown, like all over the place. And it was I was like, oh my God, this is sort of beautiful. Like I didn't you know, you I, I kind of made me yeah. rem- made me remember certain good aspects, but you know, take me there now when all the leaves are off the trees and, you know, right. the, the color right. is gray and brown and it's flat as a board and there's nothing much happening. <laughs> you know, like, right. I, I mean, to me, that sounds, you know, almost like something out of Bergman, you know, if there were strip malls, I guess, in Bergman movies, it's, bare trees and dark skies and gloom. And I can get into that every now and then, but, but, uh, but I know what you're saying. It's probably a lot nicer there when it's green and lush and, or the uh, or the fall, you know, the fall yeah. which, which lasts like you know three weeks or whatever before it all comes right. down. But you know, it is right. it is sort of Bergman esque. Like that's the thing. That's actually a, a, a good way of putting it because there's something, especially in Indiana, where there's not um, any snow like in the winters. And, and uh-huh. not, obviously, this is all changing with with uh, the climate situation. Like Chicago hasn't had snow in like two years, but. Crazy. Uh, you know, if you go up into the, I, I was born in Milwaukee, and if you go up into the what I call the Great White North, which is like Michigan, Minnesota, Wisconsin, those, right? Those states, like they have a winter, and like the the lakes freeze over, and you can go ice skating and ice fishing and play hockey and go cross country skiing and like get out there and do stuff in the snow. But in Indiana, it's just flat as a board and it's freezing rain. And right. So the winters, it adds a certain level of bleakness to the winters because there's just no, no redeeming quality almost. You know, it's just a lot of like heavy gray skies. Yeah. And, and bleakness, I guess, can be uh, easy to romanticize a little bit when you're not living in it. Right. When you're actually sort of caught up in bleak for months on end. Right. It doesn't have any real glamour. No. But, uh, but, but, you know, it's, uh, you were saying how, you know, if you grew up somewhere, it kind of gives you the authority to diss it in some way. There's really, I, I have very few criticisms of New York. Um, I do feel really lucky that I, that I, that I got to grow up here, even though I didn't realize I was lucky at the time. Um, I, I, you know, we hear a lot of, uh, people complain about how the city changes and how Manhattan is only for the rich now. And, um, and that often does feel true. And, and that's kind of depressing to me. Um, but the New York I grew up in, which I think a lot of people look back on, the 70s is sort of the scariest time here. Um, you know, the son of Sam and the, and the big blackout and a uh, huge financial crisis in the city and just total pandemonium. Um, yeah, I loved the New York I grew up in. I'm not far from Times Square right now. And it's still stunning to me when I'm in Times Square, which is not an experience I enjoy at all. And I think about Times Square when I was a kid in the late 70s, and it was grimy and a little scary, but kind of thrilling to be there. Every now and then, uh, my grandfather or a friend of the family would take me to the Colony Record Shop, which was this great record shop in Times Square that didn't close uh, until pretty recently. And it was like a big treat to go to the Colony in Times Square and get a record 
So now I'm totally dating myself in five million <laughs> ways. <laughs> We'd go to a really grimy Times Square and I'd buy a record for the phonograph. Um, <laughs> Um, but you know, but it, you know, I don't know if like a nine-year-old thinks of things as CD or. Uh, but you could feel it anyway. You know, there was this kind of um, frisson of interesting danger um, that you certainly don't feel there anymore. And I know it's kind of um, uh, dangerous to to sound too nostalgic about any of this. But, you know, I think that's, I, I guess I would participate in that kind of criticism of New York, that the Manhattan I grew up in, you could be a writer, you could be, you know, and not, you know, a best-selling huge author, you could be someone who wrote stuff, you could be a poet, you could be a social worker or a teacher or a librarian and, and live a life and raise a family in Manhattan. And, and that seems really hard to do now. Yeah. I mean, that's, it's the thing about, especially when it comes to writing, it's like, it's kind of feels like all or nothing almost. And may, maybe that's that way in a lot of different professions or that's just kind of how it feels broadly. It's like the 1% thing, you know, and sure, it's like, you're either there or you're in, you know, you're with the masses and everyone's pretty much screwed. You know? Yeah, exactly. Uh, it does kind of feel that way. Um, but okay, you know, but here, so here's a question though, this, sure. this comes, this comes into my mind all the time when I think about it is that if this is true, if there is like the 1% who has the money and then everybody else is essentially uh, battling for bread, um, you know, the 1%, like if you think about a city, the size of Manhattan and the amount of people who live there and how expensive it is to live there. Mm-hmm. And I live in LA and the same could be said, uh, right. who, who are all these people who can afford these apartments? That cost, who are they? Who can afford I mean, I mean, it? This- Brad, this is the eternal question. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, is it all bank people? I don't know. It's got to be. Um, it's got to be legacies too. It's got to be people just getting hand, you know, passed down through family, you know, generations. People inherit apartments or houses or whatever. It's got to. Yeah, be. I mean, I feel there's always been some of that. You know, there's always been some of that, but just, but you know, but I mean, I see this in Brooklyn too. Um, I I live. Um, at the very south end of Park Slope, which is a really beautiful neighborhood. I live in what some people would probably think of as the least picturesque, least nice part of it. Um, but I, I like it a lot. I've been there 16 years. Um, but, you know, when I, when I moved there 16 years ago, it was pretty solidly working class um, and quite mixed. Um, and now, I mean, even on my block, buildings have sold for more than a million dollars. Like, who is, you know, buying a million-dollar house a, a little bit far out in Brooklyn for for the taste of most people who work in Manhattan. Um, I don't know. I don't know where all this money comes from, Brad. Yeah, it's a big mystery. Uh, it is mysterious. You know, and maybe it's like too. The, the, it's a little bit dis, uh, disorienting to think of it like when you when you break it down in the one percent and the ninety nine percent. You know, there are just there's just a really high concentration of wealthy people by. Um, American standards in places like New York and LA. There's a lot of wealth, you know, in those cities. There so, is a lot of wealth. So there, um, you know, there's hundreds of thousands, if not, you know, over a million people probably right there in the city who make a shit ton of money. <laughs> absolutely. And, and, and I've seen this, um, you know, like I kind of see everything else through the lens of bar culture. One bar that I write about, um, Puffy's, it still exists. It's a beautiful corner bar in Tribeca. I mean, it's like textbook, exemplary corner bar with dark wood and tiled floors and high ceilings and, you know, dark green paint on the walls. I mean, it just sort of oozes 
old-school bar atmosphere. Yeah. And, um, and when I started hanging out there in the mid-'90s, uh, even then I knew that something was kind of coming to an end. Most of the people I met there were artists. It was a real artist neighborhood. Nobody, nobody wanted to move to Tribeca in the 70s. It wasn't called Tribeca in the 70s. It was just, you know, somewhere vaguely between uh, Chinatown and the financial district, somewhere, you know, people didn't really go on the west side um, below Canal Street except to work. So people started finding loft spaces on these dark little cobbled streets and making them livable, making them find places to work in, making the neighborhood really lively and interesting. And some of the artists I met back then at Puffy's did really well um, in their art careers. Some didn't and had to take on a variety of other jobs, as most of us who make stuff have to do. Um, but you could really feel this shift in the mid-'90s that, that they were being supplanted, that people were really getting forced out of their lofts. Um, you know, suddenly people saw how much money these things were worth or how much money they could get for them. And uh, I know very few people um, who I met back then in the neighborhood who still live there. And just forced them out. They all went to Brooklyn? Went to Brooklyn or decided to sort of, you know, kind of pack it in and and move out of the city uh, where they'd have a whole lot more studio space anyway. Um, but yeah, a lot of people really had to move along. And, and, and when I go back to that bar, it's, it's still this beautiful corner place, but, uh, but, um, it just doesn't have that mix of patrons anymore. I wouldn't want a bar that's all artists. I wouldn't want a bar that's all bankers. I certainly wouldn't want a bar that's all writers. That would be like a nightmare, (laughs) (laughs) you know, but you, I I mean, really, um, you know, what you want is a mix. And I think that's getting harder to get in Manhattan. Yeah. It feels like, I mean, like when I think of Tribeca now, it's definitely just financial people. Is that right? Right. Yeah. 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 You can sort of like the neighborhood sort of, uh, have their, their identity, you know, and then it's like. I don't know. I don't know it well enough to really say with confidence, but there's ways that like the West Village seems and, you know, the Upper East Side seems and so on and so forth. I'm sure sure you could categorize it, but do you feel like you're a lifer, like in Brooklyn? Like, do you you, you know what I'm saying? Like, are you ever going to take off? I I feel like a lifer in so many ways. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, you know, I I, I, I do. I don't want to leave Brooklyn. I mean, the life I think I would really like but maybe I'm wrong, um, but I'd like to learn if, if I am right or wrong. I, I would love to divide my time between Brooklyn and Ireland. There That's you go. what I'd really like to do. Okay, so um, why Ireland? I have a big thing for Ireland, which is kind of funny for a Jewish girl from New York. Um, but I went there the summer after my freshman year of college because I loved Yates and I loved Wilde and I loved Beckett. And, Where, um, where'd you go to college? I went to Bennington in Vermont. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when you were talking about beautiful autumn in Indiana, I was holding my tongue because <laughs> you're like Vermont yeah. kind of owns autumn. Right. Um, so I spent the summer in Dublin, and, uh, and it was a great summer. It was massively disappointing when I first arrived there. I had wanted to go so badly, and finally I had this opportunity, and I got there, and I was like, you know, this city... It's kind of ugly. Um, it's small. Um, the main. Do, do you know Dublin? No, I've never been. I've never been, but I'd oh, love to go. Oh, 
yeah, you should go. Everybody should go. It's really fun. Um, you know, the main drag near the college campus was just full of the usual chain stores that we had everywhere at the time, you know. Like, I needed to go across the Atlantic to see a Benetton in a body shop. <laughs> um, so I was really disappointed, like, my first couple days, and I thought I, I may have made a mistake. I may have built it up too much in my imagination. And then, you know, within a month, um, I, I was thinking really hard about whether I would ever return to the U.S. or not. Um, and so much of that had to do with a the pub there. Uh, you know, school was fine. It was, it was all right. Um, but the pub where I became a regular for that brief period of two and a half months, um, I just met such great people, many of whom I'm still friends with. I came to really like the small scale of the city. Um, and, uh, I think one thing it has in common with New York or one thing I should say Dubliners have in common with New Yorkers is we talk all the time. You're in line at the post office. You're waiting for your pint at the bar. You're just walking down the street. Everybody's talking. And, uh, and I really like that. Um, and I, I'm kind of a hopeless New Yorker in the sense that I don't drive. <laughs> I, I, you know, so cities that have a really lively pedestrian life where people are really engaging with each other are really interesting to me. Um, yeah, yeah, see, that's, a, that's what I, that's what I uh, wish Los Angeles had more of. You know, there's not any pedestrian stuff happening at all. And I don't know if I've mentioned this on this show before or not, but there's this, you know, there's outdoor malls in Los Angeles because the weather's good. And so, you know, shopping right. malls are not always interior. And so there's this shopping mall uh, called The Grove, which is, I mean, it, you know, it's sort of bleak to even talk about it, but <laughs> it's just like really like kind of Disneyfied cityscape it's like a outdoor avenue and they've got it kind of like decorated or designed like a street in new york or i don't know even how to describe it you'd have to sort of see it but people go there like nobody's business including me despite the fact that my wife and i always sort of like you know tell ourselves we're never going back but it's easy with Uh the kid and blah 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 so yeah um but i figured out why people like it so much and it's because there's other pedestrians around. We can actually like mingle with other human beings. Whereas, it's really nice, isn't yeah, it? It's, yeah. Yeah. But you know what? This um, this is interesting to me because I, I've spoken to a lot of people over the last few years who keep telling me that L.A. is getting more pedestrian friendly, that there are more neighborhoods where people can actually walk to their grocery store and grab a cup of coffee and have a drink. I don't know. Some like very L.A. Pro LA people I know have been telling me, you seem to suggest this is not the case. Well, it's just not the same. I mean, it's like, yeah, yeah, that stuff happens. And frankly, like, it's great to live in one of those neighborhoods and on one of those blocks where you have um, proximity and you can do those kinds of walks. But, like, you know, it's it's a long walk in a lot of neighborhoods. (laughs) um, It's just not the same. Like, the. The, right. level, the level of human traffic that you get in New York and just that, um, you know, even if you're not talking to people, just seeing them and being close to them and, you know, that all that kind of stuff, the, the observational opportunities, especially for somebody who's writerly, like I envy that, you know, because everyone's kind of in, closed off in their houses or their apartments or their cars in L.A., uh, which has, you know, plenty of virtues. I love it here, but there's that aspect yeah. of it that I wish, you know, we had more of. Yeah, I mean, sometimes it's kind of staggering to me just how many people I encounter on on any given day in New York. You know, how many different faces I look at on the subway, um, how many people I pass 
walking one block from the subway to this apartment right now. Um, yeah, I mean, there's tons of people, and I guess I really, I really do love that. There have been these moments I thought, oh, it'd be so nice to live out in the country. Uh, and, and I went through this really weird thing like a decade ago where I'd go on one of those online real estate sites and um, kind of look at, like, Vermont property porn. Uh-huh. I, you know, I'd, I'd look at these, you know, beautiful, <clears throat> old, slightly dilapidated farmhouses in the middle of nowhere on, like, 50 acres. And, um, and, and I was married then, and my, my husband, who actually is from, was from California, you know, he, he'd see me sort of drooling over these big pastoral places in Vermont, and he's like, you wouldn't know what to do with half an acre, you know, you, you love this idea of just this great swath of wilderness around you, but you'd freak out, um, you know, not being able to walk to someone's house or, or walk to a bar to get a drink. Just got to ride your horse uh, or, or something. <laughs> I'd have to learn to ride a horse. I'd have to learn to drive a car. Yeah. Uh, it would be so much work for me to live anywhere but a city, I think. Yeah. No, and you know, I think you get you get used to wherever you're at, but I think there's certain things about a city that are hard to replace. And you know, for me, I think about. I mean, and who knows what what comes in life? You know, maybe I, I say this to you now, and like two years from now, I could be living in Vermont in like a farmhouse. But uh, I think that I'd like to go out to the country and out into you know nature, or whatever, on vacation or for shorter bursts of time, and then come back to the city as my primary residence. Yeah, no, that sounds about right to me. You know. That that sounds right to me. It's nice to visit the country. Yeah, but uh, but I'm I'm pretty happy where I am. Okay, so uh, like your background as an artist and as a writer. I mean, I'm looking at your bio here on your website, and it says that you've been a bartender, a fortune teller, a librarian at a paranormal society, an English uh-huh. teacher, an editor, a preacher, a community uh-huh. a community organizer, and a manager uh-huh. of, of homeless shelters. So you've done a lot of different things. <laughs> I've done a lot of different things. Uh, it's true. I think writing was always uh, something I did and something I really cared about. But when I was a kid, the writing that really mattered to me was writing poems. And uh, and I, I discovered pretty early that that's a really hard way to make a living. It's hard <laughs> enough. <laughs> it's hard enough to, to, to make a living as a writer, um, doing it in poetry, um, really hard you you just have to be that great and I, and I don't think I was that great at writing poems I, I still do it once in a while um, and I read poetry all the time uh, but but that when I thought about writing as a kid poems were the thing me too uh, that's weird I was a huge like Shel Silverstein was like the first for me like that where I was like this is cool you know yeah, totally totally cool and, and even before that like nursery rhymes and yeah um, just so much. And my dad was a sports writer and a, a really terrific sports writer. Wait, was, um, is your dad Dick Shep? Yeah, that was my dad. No way. I, I yeah. was, was going to ask you that, but I was like, no, that can't be. Holy shit. I'm a huge fan. Yeah. I grew up Thank watching you. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I mean, he was such a terrific writer. And I'm not just saying that out of daughterly love or, or bias. I, I, I think, you know, I, I can categorically say my father was a great sports writer. And he worked like a dog. I mean, the guy wrote or ghost wrote 40 books. Jesus. Um, so I think seeing him just like working so hard, I mean, it was like he was a writing machine. Um, I, I, 
that that seemed very difficult to me. <laughs> that seemed, you yeah, know, poems. I'm, I'm exhausted. I, I'm, I'm exhausted thinking, just thinking about it. Forty books is like holy. forty books. I know. I don't. I you know. I I, I don't know. I don't know how he did it. I, I know that you have interviewed my my good friend Jamie Attenberg, yeah, um, who also is just phenomenally, stunningly productive. I, I call her the James Brown of fiction. <laughs> she just works so hard and is so into it. And I, I think I mistakenly, as a kid, thought you know that kind of writing, writing books, you know, just so much work. It, that's not the mistaken part. It is a lot of work. But I, I think there was more of an idea of some kind of leisure, some kind of slowness I attached with writing poems, where I, I understood it could be this very deliberate kind of thing. Um, and, and obviously there are different poets who go at it very different, in very different ways. Well, and that's an, inter- it's an interesting point with regard to writers and how they work and how, you know, because I've been going over this in my head lately. I have this almost constant debate, which might not be healthy creatively, but I'm always like analyzing myself and saying like, do I love this the way that I, you need to love it to be really good at it? Like some of these people, it seems like they're having a much easier time than I am or, you know what I'm saying? I, 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 I think about this and, and I've actually been talking to people about this a lot lately. Um, you know, I, I don't know if the ones who really love it have an easier time. I'm not sure about that. Um, I, I know that I'm one of these people who doesn't like, I don't wake up in the morning so psyched to start writing. <laughs> I'm, and I know, and I, I know, and I'm sure you know people who do feel that way. Yeah. It's like they're, I mean, it's, and, and the reading, like, I mean, just like, like they'll voraciously read every contemporary piece of fiction that comes down the pike or every hot book or whatever it is. And like, I'm much harder to please, or I have weirder sensibility. And it's like, I have a hard time finding a book that I'm really, really interested in. And like, yeah. That's so interesting because you 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 you're so involved in the world of books and but, talking to writers all the time and yeah um, I, I mean I think like discernment is always such an interesting issue you know we don't have that much time I don't want to sound too gloomy and, and I didn't mean with our interview I meant on the planet <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> life is short um, those of us who love to read and I like reading so much more than I like writing yeah um, you know I, yeah I, I, we can't read everything that's obvious. Um, so I think I sound a little weird and stodgy, um, uh, you know, when people ask me what I'm reading, I, I have read some recent books that I've really, really loved. Um, but what I really wanted to do this winter was, was read Chaucer again. I, I hadn't read Chaucer in a very long time and it came up in a conversation and I, so going back to the Canterbury Tales and finding that incredibly rewarding, um, you know, and I also have to read an awful lot about booze uh, <laughs> to write my column. Does that dimin- and, and does I, that diminish the enjoyment of, of boozing at all to have to read about it and write about it? Like, do you find no? Yourself- no, it, fortunately, it it doesn't. But I, I I know exactly what you're saying. You know, I mean, when, when I worked in book publishing a million years ago, I never wanted to read when I got home. You know, I was looking at manuscripts all day. Yeah, and and that took some pleasure. Um, away from just just reading on my own time. Well, it's like when you take um, a, when you take a class like in creative writing or, or not not even in creative writing necessarily, but literature, or you take a film uh, a film class, and then suddenly you start to watch movies or read books in a deconstructive manner, and it you know there is a certain innocence lost or something. You know, you're, <laughs> you're not just you're not you, you can kind of see like 
you can kind of see the gears. You know what I'm saying? And it's not, you're no longer just reading as a uh, fan or just as a casual, casual reader, you know, you take on a different bearing, but that doesn't mean that it can't be satisfying, you know? Sure. Um, yeah. I mean, I think sometimes, you know, reading, reading a, when you can, like reading a book or a poem very, very closely, um, it feels like such a, um, gosh, what is the word I'm looking for? It's so rare that I'm really be able to sit and do that anymore, that it's just like a complete pleasure when I can really sit and read something um, that isn't connected to work. Even though a lot of what I read that's connected to work is totally interesting to me. Um, but uh, I, I haven't been able to just like sit down with a novel in a while, and I'd really love to do that soon. Yeah, and it's like I'd love to do that. And it's, like, it's for me, there's nothing better than having a book that like you literally are obsessed with and you, you think about it every second that you're not reading it. Like you just need to finish it. Do you know what I'm saying? Like yeah. That, oh, yeah. That extreme urgency is so, so nice. And it's it's not always easy for me to find. You know what I'm saying? The book that no. like, speaks to you at just the right at just the right way at just the right time in your life. You know, it's a, it's a cool thing. It is a cool thing. So, um, so let's talk. So your, your, your father was a sports writer. What, what did your mother do? Did she, was she writerly at all? Um, she liked to write. She was a great reader. Um, she died not so long ago and she was a really interesting, difficult person. Um, I, you know, I, this isn't, it's, it's hard for me to talk about her, um, uh, I don't know if I'm superstitious or, you know, I, I think about how my mother would wish to be spoken of and I try to be sensitive to that. She was really interesting and I think if she had like grown up in, in a different generation, her life would have been very different and much happier. Um, she was a really glamorous person. Uh, I have sometimes described her and, and this is something I said to her face, which she found very funny. So I feel like an, as like a cross between, um, Holly Golightly and Medea. Um, you know, this very charming, very urbane, glamorous person who also could be incredibly wrathful. Um, you know, I think, I, I, I don't know. I, I, I wish she could have grown up in a, in a different time. Um, I feel like her generation was just a little bit sort of pre-feminist movement. Um, you know, I think of her young womanhood in New York and I think of a very, um, glamorous kind of Truman Capote, late 50s, early 60s kind of life, which sounds wonderful in many ways. But I think she would. She went to acting school. She was going to be an actress, um, but she really wanted to have kids. Um, and, and I think, you know, when she was really coming of age as a woman, it wasn't um, understood that you could do both of those things, that you could really try to make a career as an actress um, and have a family. Um, it's still hard. I, I mean, regardless it's of still the hard, regardless of, course. of regardless of profession, but acting especially. I mean, it's... yeah. Um, I mean, she was really, really funny. She was super New York. She was a Brooklyn girl. Um, her family, you know, it was kind of like a variation, kind of like a Jewish Jeffersons. They they lived in Flatbush and then moved on up to Park Avenue when she was a teenager. Um, but she always connected very deeply with Brooklyn. Oh, I thought, I thought you were going to say she always connected very deeply with the Jeffersons, which would have been awesome. But Well, kind of. I mean, we love that show, yeah. certainly. Um, yeah, so she moved from, her family moved from Flatbush, 
Uh, she went to a Rasmus Hall High School, public school, also well-known as the alma mater of Barbara Streisand. Okay. Um, yeah. Um, so she moved into Manhattan, but, you know, I think Brooklyn was always huge in her heart and in her consciousness, and, and, and I think she had a little more of a Brooklyn accent before she went to acting school, long before I was born, um, but there were still vestiges of that. Um, no, she was a really great person, not an easy parent. You know, she was the kind of mom all of my friends loved. All of my friends thought she was like the most fun and foul mouth, which is probably why I'm not. Like if you were interviewing my mom right now, um, you would really get an earful. <laughs> So, um, no, so my- this is interesting because like I'm, I've been negotiating with this with my wife like about our daughter because, I, you know, I mean, I'm a, sort of of the George Carlin school of thought when it comes to cussing. Like I, I don't want to p- penalize my daughter for saying damn it or yeah. I, if, if she if she calls someone a name, you know, or uses like, you know, language in a way to harm somebody. That's an yeah. issue. But I don't you know, I don't I kind of I kind of find it charming uh, in a way when moms are foul mouthed or when even when kids you know swear a little bit i don't care is that weird am i going to raise like a monster like what what should you I are do? not no I, I it sounds to me like your approach to it is great you know to not censor her too much but to like really be aware if she's being hurtful or mean-spirited or anything i mean that's a whole different thing yeah um so you know i, I i'm not a parent but i would think if you really try to suppress that that's where the real problems <laughs> would 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 happen um so, you know, if it's, it sounds okay to me. I mean, you're the parents, and, okay. and if you're both okay with it, I think it sounds all right. I mean, my mom, I, I, I was always um, kind of entertained by, by her insanely over-the-top foul mouth, but there were occasions when I was mortified by it. <laughs> right. You know, like if we were, you know, waiting for a table in a restaurant and she'd strike up a conversation with the maitre d', and the next thing you knew, it was like, oh, you know that fucking cunt so-and-so? She used to come in here all the time, you know, and I'm like eight and shaking my head. Um, <laughs> so, you know, so, I mean, she was really funny. My friends always got a huge kick out of her. Um, uh, but she, she, was, she had a very volatile temper, and, and certainly that, you know, contributed to my leaving home pretty young. Um, but I really loved her, and I miss her, and I, I think she really did... You know, again, I'm not a parent, and parenting seems really difficult to me. Um, so I, I think she tried really hard, and she really loved her kids, but you know, had stuff going on that, if she had been part of a different generation, would have been addressed. Yeah. I, I think she was, you know, one of these people who was sort of told as a kid, and I, I loved her parents. I love my grandparents, but I, I think they didn't really encourage her. I think she would have loved to have gone to some, you know, little liberal arts school like Bennington, and 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 read a lot of books, and maybe tried writing, and and she was a terrific singer. So I think her timing in this world was a little off. Yeah. Well, now, you know, it's so weird, too, to think about, like, generational stuff. And I think about the, like, baby boomer generation getting older. And then I don't, I guess I'm Generation X. I I lose track of, like, all the delineations. But I think about, like, how, and and you know what? This isn't the case for everybody. It's obviously not a blanket statement. You can't, you can't paint that broadly. But what, what are we going to be appalled by? 20 years from now, you know, like I'm, I'm sort of, I'm sort of obsessed with trying to remain, um, young in spirit. I really, really, oh, yeah? It's, yeah, it's very important to me. Like, I don't, That's so I don't, I have, how does one do that? Well, like, I, I think it's like, I mean, I've thought about it a lot. I think like some of it is being interested and not like turning off sure. 
you know, turning off your mind to like new things and deciding that like, you know, you're done like with new music, (laughs) you know, there's like a way, there's a lot of people who do that. I think it's like tempting to do that or the circumstances of life conspire and, you know, you don't have time to like obsess over new music the way you did when you were 19 or something. But I, I very much worry about that because I think that, um, you know, there's a certain kind of, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, you know, when you, what's, what happens when you're like, uh, in bed for too long and your muscles weaken, what is that called? Oh, atrophy. Yeah. You atrophy like mentally yeah. and spiritually. If you don't. Oh, this is scaring me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's scaring me too, you know, but I, I Oh think, my God. We're yeah, scared. But I think, I think that the, I think that the awareness of it hopefully maybe is a part of the preventative, you know? I hope so, too, for your sake, because I haven't been trying in any way at all. But I think I'm lucky. Uh, I, I work one shift a week at a bar, and um, I am certainly an elder among the staff at the bar. So many of my coworkers at the bar are in their 20s, and, um, and they're really great. I think I never had a dim view of people younger than myself. Um, but this has given me um, more affection, really being around them a lot. Like, you know, these 20-somethings are pretty great, and they're interested in lots of cool stuff, and they're reading, and they're making things, and they're fun to talk to, and they're engaged with the world. Um, so I, I guess kind of just out of circumstances, I, I haven't been worrying about that because I've been around these really cool young people. Yeah, no, I mean, I used to teach college, and like that was the, that was one of the great things about it. And there, there's just like all this idealism and energy, and it's like, yeah, I, I very much like that, you know. Yeah, yeah. So, but but then I have these funny moments being among these twenty somethings at the bar, where you know, like a Fugazi song or something will come on the iPod mix in the bar, and I'll be like, oh, I saw Fugazi in 1980, blah blah blah, <laughs> and they're like, oh my god, you're being that guy. Uh, but it's pretty funny. Yeah. They, they don't mean it in a mean way. It's just pretty funny. <laughs> well, but you know, there's something to be said for age and experience as well. You know, there needs to be a balance. Oh, I hope so. Yeah. We, we better hope so. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, you know, Blake, Blake is one of my favorite poets ever. And I sort of think about that innocence experience binary all the time. Yeah. You know, well, it's, it's kind of connected to what I was saying about New York. I, I, you know, it wasn't until I was sort of in a position of experience um, that I, I noticed how lucky I was to have been young and, and innocent here. I had no idea. Yeah, yeah, I mean, exactly. Um, so a couple things I want to ask you about. I want to start first because it's going to bother me if I don't ever hear this straight from uh-huh. you. Uh, fortune teller and preacher. Yeah, yeah. Those are two, oh, things in, two things in your bio. So let's go for fortune teller first. Okay. Um, So when I was a teenager, around the time I dropped out of high school, uh, I was really into tarot card readings. Um, And there's a chapter, actually the first story in the book, the first chapter, um, is about uh, my young uh, life as a tarot card reader in the bar car of the Metro North commuter train between Connecticut and New York. (laughs) Um, You know, so so tarot was my thing, um, but I, I dabbled a little bit in tea leaves, runes, um, and, and then I, when I left school, I was on Grateful Dead tour for a very long time. And, and that was one of my many small industries on tour. Like you made, you actually uh, like went on full tour and made a living. I went on full tour. You know, I, I mean, I wish I could say, oh yeah, I made a living, but I assure you I got bailed out a lot. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. I, you know, I, I didn't have a lot, but I did have a safety net. 
Um, but at the same time, I did have to, um, you know, try to make some money um, to live that way. What, what, years, what years were you on tour? Eighty-seven, eighty-eight. Okay, like just like Jerry, yeah. Jerry was like just coming out of his uh, uh, diabetic coma, I think. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So you you read the fantastic New Yorker story. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, which you know, uh, which I thought was such a great story, but it reminded me that oh, of course I was on on tour, ex- you know, right when it kind of Started. stopped being great. <laughs> um, but I, I loved it. Um, I loved it. Uh, I, I never felt good about um, taking money for tarot card readings. There was also some kind of weird superstitious thing about that it seemed uh it seemed uh it just didn't seem right to me um so a lot of bartering like you know i'd trade a tarot card reading for you know a bowl of tofu chili (laughs) 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 or a pair of beaded earrings or a t-shirt or something like that or occasionally i'd give someone a reading and if they were really happy they'd give me a ticket yeah um so that was fun and it it's hard to say exactly when I, I kind of stopped really doing that. In, in college, like by the time I got to college, um, and I'd never finished high school, I got a GED, I'd been on Grateful Dead tour for the better part of two years. Um, by the time I got to college, I thought I had become like basically a normal-looking person. <laughs> my, my friends who knew me freshman year will say that this is not the case. Um, you know, I, freshman year of college, I had many layers of skirts, and I still wore vegan shoes and... Um, and very long hair and it's hard blah, to find, blah, blah. it's hard but, to find, it's hard to find really good looking vegan shoes, you know? <laughs> right. Right. Um, but I, I thought, you know, comparing how I was at that moment to what I looked like when I was really deep into tour life, I thought I, I just looked like a totally respectable, normal 19 year old person. Um, so I, I still did tarot card readings a little bit in college, but, um, but not so much. And, uh, and now, occasionally, a good friend will ask for a reading for a birthday present or something like that. And, and those are the only times I'll do it. Uh, when I was writing that, that chapter about that time in my life, I, I thought it was important to actually take out the cards again. So I invited one of my oldest best friends over, <clears throat> and we had this fantastic, super regressive night of like blasting Led Zeppelin and drinking lots of cheap wine. Dropping acid. And, uh, well, not that. No, no. God, um, no. I, 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 I can't do that again. It's like something that, that um, I never had a bad experience with. Um, but it's another one of these things, one of these innocence experience things. Like now, I know too much. I fear too much. I can't. You can't go back there. Um, it's so a, we had a really super regressive night without the LSD, um, but with lots of incense. And uh, and it was fun, but I, I just don't, you know, there was a time in my life I took it so seriously. I was so super earnest about tarot card readings. I really believed they could tell you stuff, and uh, and that went away. The dream is gone. The dream is gone. <laughs> There's still nice little vestigial trails of it, I think. Uh, um, and then what about Preacher? Preacher. Um, so, uh, just as I, I felt uncomfortable with the idea of taking money for tarot card readings, I remember when I first decided to enroll in seminary, and I told my mother, she said, oh, do you think maybe you'll like be on TV and you'll make lots of money? <laughs> like, when I, when I mentioned this to her, like, her vision for it was, you know, some really rich televangelist. Um, but no, I had this whole sort of social justice... Um, kind of agenda. Uh, I mean, I really did feel called to ministry, 
um, you know, not in this huge, dramatic, you know, angels came flying at me. Or um, It wasn't like that. It was just a sort of quiet but persistent um, feeling that somehow a lot of the stuff I cared about um, at the time, particularly like economic justice, um, this is right when I was a community organizer, um, were somehow connected to faith for me. And uh, I had thought about Unitarian ministry, um, but that was a lot of school, and 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 it just seemed not not only was I not willing to you know give up this whole um, business of being a Jewish person, you know, it occurred to me that you can't that it's such like a powerful part of my family's history um, that being a Jew is a big deal. There's really not that many of uh, of us. Um, you know, we've had our share of tough times. I, I, I couldn't, you know, disconnect myself from that, e- even though there are Jewish Unitarians and Buddhist Unitarians. Um, do they, you know, call, what, do they call themselves? Of, do they call themselves like Junitarians or anything like that? Is there like some a, of them do? But that's really cute, right? Yeah, I, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so, you know, but at the same time, again, going back to William Blake, I had this real attraction to what I saw as a kind of radical Christianity. Um, this radical Blakean, um, the world will change, vision of a new Jerusalem. You know, we have to think more imaginatively. We have to be kinder to people, care more about um, people who are suffering. So it was just kind of this messy um, convergence of, of things that were really important to me, and, and in many ways still are, that uh, resulted in this very peculiar call. And I found out there was such a thing as interfaith ministry. You don't have to give up being anything. You can totally be... Jewish and Blakean and Marxist and whatever you are and still be ordained. Um, and, and mostly I was interested in, in chaplaincy. And, and I was a 9-11 uh, emergency response Red Cross chaplain. Uh, and I wrote about that in the book, too. Um, but I also did preach from time to time, you know, at liberal churches around the city with open pulpits where they invite guest ministers in to preach. And I really like preaching. It's like writing a great essay. Yeah. Um, and, and, and that just made it clear to me, you know, how, what a hard job um, being a rabbi, being a minister, leading a congregation, really being expected to dis- deliver something meaningful week after week after week while really tending to people's everyday anxieties and problems and big life events. It's a really hard job. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I still officiate it at weddings and commitment ceremonies and um, the occasional memorial service. And I wouldn't say I'd never preach again, but, but boy, like, you know, I write a poem once every three years. I mean, for me to write a sermon every six years, that's like a real achievement. <laughs> right. Well, uh, before I let you go, I want to ask about something delicate. And, uh, you know, I when researching for this um you know, for this interview, I read some of your stuff and I read about the loss of your husband. Oh, yeah. And it was really moving, obviously. And it's a very, I mean, it hits close to home for anybody, I think, who's married. I'm married and it's like the worst yeah. possible thing to imagine. And, you know, it's like, what do I ask you about that? Obviously, I don't want you to have to like, you know, relive it or anything like that. But I'm interested to know, yeah. I guess, two things. Like one, did it factor into um, the writing of this particular book or did it, did it, initiate any kind of major creative change in you and then um b how do you deal with it <laughs> do you know what i'm saying like i i don't know yeah um well there's a there's a, a a complicated awful chronology here um 
my husband and I uh, were actually separated. Um, this was early 2008, and after about a year of counseling, we decided we would give a six-month trial separation a shot and see how that went. And um, and we agreed that we wouldn't. He was he was an academic. He was teaching in Pennsylvania, and I was living in Brooklyn. And we agreed we would we would not be in touch um, during that time unless there was a health emergency, a pet emergency. We had split our cats up at the time, um, or a family emergency. Really, just like an emergency, we would be in touch. Otherwise, we would regroup when we had planned to, and see where we were. And um, so. Just, uh, I think it was just two months into this trial separation, um, I got this book deal. This was in early 2008. I got this great professional news. Um, and then I think it was honestly within a week, I was leaving my office. I worked at a magazine at the time, and I was teaching a creative writing workshop at the Cathedral of St. John the Divine. And I was just about to leave my office to go to the cathedral, and the phone rang, and it was Frank, and I knew something um, horrible <laughs> must have happened. And he just said, you know, without any, any prefatory remarks of any kind, he said, I have cancer. And we talked about it. And uh, it was clear to me that um, he had to return to New York to be treated. There was no way um, I, I could uh, allow the idea of him being treated for cancer in rural Pennsylvania. Um, and he had a very, very rare um, he had a really rare, really vicious, just horrible cancer. He had small cell esophageal cancer, which accounts for 1% of esophageal cancers. Um, so even here in New York, where there's, you know, presumably some of the greatest cancer care in the world, there was very little. Um, so Frank's illness and the writing of this book were completely happening at the same time. Um, and, and the book took a long time to write. Um, and I was fortunate that the people who, who I was working with, um, my editor, my publisher, um, they're human and they're nice and they knew what was going on and it was very, very slow going. I mean, there was, I, I had, I had written a very rough draft when it became clear that things were getting really bad. Um, I was like, I'm, I'm going to just finish a really rough draft. This was probably about a month before he died. Um, and I finished it, and I knew it was really rough, and I knew it needed, it needed a lot of work. And then after he died, I, I, I wrote very little for the following year. I just couldn't. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it totally um, changed my creative. I, I don't remember exactly how you put it, Brad, but... I mean, did um, it initiate? Yeah, I mean, it's like... I guess it's different for different people. Like, so I, you, sometimes I imagine that if something really cataclysmic like that happened, maybe it would unleash some big force of creativity. And then I hear you say that you didn't write for a year. So, I mean, no, no, it, it, it completely paralyzed me. Um, uh, I, I couldn't focus. Um, and I, he had done really well. Uh, I, I mean, cancer, it's just such a big, awful thing and, and it does so many different things. And, um, he was doing great for about a year and a half. Um, I mean, we knew statistically his chances were not great with the kind of cancer he had, but he was doing great. He was teaching. He was going to conferences, um, responding pretty well to different kinds of treatments. And and then it was about six months before he died, maybe even a little less, that things really started getting awful. There was a complication, and that led to further complications. Um, And uh, there wasn't... uh, another metastasis until very close to his death. Uh, I mean, it's such a strange cancer. It's metastatic. This is probably more than you ever wanted to know about 
small cell esophageal cancer, but it's, it's metastatic on presentation. They know that it, it originates in the esophagus, but um, by the time he was diagnosed, and they, and they think he was diagnosed quite early um, in the life of his cancer, if you can call it that, it was uh, esophagus, lymph nodes, and liver. Um, so it was unusual that it hadn't spread elsewhere for more than a year and a half. Um, but then near the very end when it did, um, I mean, that was, that was really it. Um, and, you know, we, I think almost everybody, I'm sure you have lost someone you love. Sure. Um, you've mourned. Um, uh, it's very, I, I've seldom seen mourning, um, be really fertile, at least initially. Um, I think it's one of these things you can sort of, or for me anyway, I can, I can reflect on it and, um, and it's sad to think about, but in some ways, sure, interesting, um, but, you know, when someone's really sick, there's so much stuff you have to do, whether it's arguing with insurance companies Ugh. or arranging a funeral um, or, you know, a two-in-the-morning ride to an ER. Um, there's so much stuff. Um, and then after that, after a funeral, after you've gotten all these condolences, and, and in my experience, they all sort of um, uh crescendoed into this big sort of blurry thing. You know, I think I try to think who came to the memorial. I, I can barely remember. Um, so my head, I, I mean, there was so much activity and so much that had to be done when he was sick. Uh, after that, I kind of just crashed um, and was deeply depressed. And, um, yeah, so I, I felt pretty paralyzed by it. Um, it was not a creative time for me um and, how did you how did you come out of it how did you come out into the point where you could be creative well um this is such a such an odd thing brad um if you've been reading other stuff about me uh, on the internet you've probably also found out that i'm a big soccer fan yeah um so it was about seven months after five months after frank died that it was the last world cup and um i hadn't really written anything i hadn't touched the book manuscript um, but of course I was going to go to my local soccer bar for every single Dutch game. <laughs> right. The Dutch national team is my, my, my team in international competition. Um, and wait, they, gonna... they did well in the last world cup, right? My... They did. They, they, they were beaten in the, at the bitter end by Spain in right. a completely hideous final. Right. Um, but I never thought they'd make it that far. Yeah. Not yeah. The Dutch way. Um, but I had also gotten this surprising, uh, job offered a blog of the World Cup for NPR.org. And I thought, well, you know, this will just be a small thing, and the Dutch are probably going to go out in the quarterfinals, so, so I'll do this. Um, so, yeah, the first writing I did after he died was about soccer. And, you know, when I think of really leaving my house <laughs> after he died, what I think about is, is the World Cup that summer. And, and, of course, it was also in a bar, and, I mean, not a, not a bar under normal circumstances. I mean, it was packed, except for those 7.45 a.m. kickoffs. Um, uh, but, but, yeah, in a crazy way, uh, the World Cup sort of, it, it, I mean, it didn't end my morning. Morning goes on. I don't think there is an end to it, really. Um, but it certainly changed my morning, and it made me want to leave my house, <laughs> get dressed in the morning, get up, um, and uh, and then when I, I got to write about soccer for uh, for NPR, that that gave me a job. And uh, even though I wasn't feeling very motivated, um, if I'm given a job, I'll do it. I'm dutiful that way. Um, 
so the World Cup kind of made things change for me slowly. Um, but that tournament made a big difference in my life. Hmm. Well, I'm so sorry for your loss, and I'm um, really grateful uh, for the time that uh, you know you've been able to spend talking with me. And uh, you know, one last thing is, I'm, I'm curious to know that now that you've uh, you've written this book and it's rolling out into the world, uh, do you have another project in the works? Are you thinking of the next thing, or um, I'm thinking about a, a whole bunch of next things. Um, I'm I've started working on a book about whiskey. Uh, I like and... it already. <laughs> Do you have a favorite whiskey, Brad? Uh, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm probably somewhat boring. Like, I, I Maker's Mark, you know, is what I've always been drinking. It's delicious. Life. Yeah, it's delicious. I love it. it. It's delicious. Yeah, I mean, that's a, an answer I hear a lot because, I mean, you know, Jameson day in and day out is still what I drink more than anything. And I know that sounds boring to people, too, but you have to drink what makes you happy. That's right. Um, so, yeah, so right now I'm I'm, I'm working on a whiskey book. Uh, and I think that's going to be really fun. I'm going to head to Kentucky and Tennessee for a little <clears throat> research in the spring and, uh, and over to Scot- Scotland and Ireland in the summer. Um, so that's not bad as far as research goes. I was going to say. Um, and, and, and really thinking about writing more about soccer, too. Well, and that, yeah, that, I mean, are you going to go to Brazil? That's where the next one is, right? So it's Brazil. That is summer. where the next one is. Um, oh, needs- it's so soon. It's, yeah. I can't believe Well, it's, it's, it's 2014, so... Um, yeah, it's, I, I don't know. I, I wanted to go to South Africa so badly and that big chunk of money did not materialize. Um, <laughs> you know, blogging for, for NPR about the world cup was fantastic. They didn't quite have the budget to send freelance I, I was to South say, Africa to do I was, it. I was gonna say. Um, yeah, so that didn't happen. So, you know, if, if I'm given the opportunity to go to Brazil, I would love to. Cool. Well, I wish you all the best of luck and thank you so much once again for taking the time to talk with me. Thank you so much, Brad. It was really fun. All right, you guys, there it is. That's the program. That is Rosie Schapp. Go get her book. It is called Drinking with Men. It's a memoir. Uh, You can pre-order it today, this very minute, and it's due out from Riverhead on January 24th, 2013. You can get it online wherever books are sold. You can get it in your local bookstore. You can find Rosie online at rosieschapp.com. She's on the Twitter as well, where her handle is at Rosie Schapp. Thanks to Kill Rockstars for all the great music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. And, uh, hey, don't forget to go get the app, the official app for this program, the official Other People app. It is free. It's available for your iPhone, your iPad, your iPod Touch, or your Android device. It is the best way to listen to this show. It is elegant. It is easy. New episodes automatically download to the app. You can uh, star your favorite episodes so you can remember which ones you like the best. You can download episodes to listen to offline. You can also get access to premium content and the full archive of the show if you so desire. So go get the app. Uh, It's free. Uh, Otherwise, closing thoughts, beautiful people, staring at beautiful people in public, staring at beautiful people in general. Uh, It's a great tragedy uh, to me when I think about it. You know, uh, all these beautiful people moving quickly past you in every direction. Uh, these are fleeting moments. They're here and then they're gone. You barely even get a chance to uh, acknowledge it, the beauty that's in your presence. You never see them again. They're gone. And you never got to fully experience it. That's what I'm saying here. And I think that's why we do need uh, an international hand signal that means uh, stop and let me look at you in a non confrontational, non creepy way. And I don't know exactly what that hand signal would be. Uh, Like maybe the Richard Nixon double peace sign. Maybe we can take that back. It seems sort of lame that Richard Nixon has the the double peace sign. We need to take that back. 
Uh, or perhaps it could just be like a simple palm extended outward at chest level, like a stop in the name of love type of situation. Uh, or maybe you just drop to your knees and bow your head in uh, reverence as if you were facing Mecca. Please remember that Rilke, is that how you pronounce it? Rilke was devoted to polishing furniture and that Wallace Stegner died due to injuries sustained in an automobile accident. That is it for now. Thanks as always, folks, for tuning in and listening. I do appreciate it. And I will be back again soon in just a few days with another episode for your consumption. In the meantime, uh, please try to stare at beauty more often. Life is short. Do not be ashamed. And uh, if you do it and something unusual happens, uh, if you actually try it out, if you actually try to approach a freakishly beautiful person and verbalize your intent, uh, you know, if something unusual happens in that instance, please email me about it. I would love to hear and, uh, you know, let me know what's going on. My email address is letters at other Uh, okay. I think I'm done. I think I've said everything I need to say. So, uh, have a nice day an enjoyable day, or, uh, as Hubert Selby Jr. used to say, uh, give a nice day, sort of corny, but sort of heartwarming. Give a nice day, give a nice day, give one. Can you hear my daughter? She's out there in the hallway. I need to go. Thanks, guys. I'll be back soon.